Insole International, in conjunction with the Early Research Academics Committee, presents Insole Talks. Welcome to Insole Talks. Today we have a great guest, Professor Edith Mavrak, who's a professor of international commercial law and the founder and co-director of University of Nottingham Commercial Law Centre. She teaches and researches issues of corporate law, enterprise groups, insolvency, cross-border insolvency, and bank resolution. Professor Mavra holds degrees in law from Tel Aviv University in Israel and UCL London. She used to practice law in Israel. And since 2006, Irit has been acting as an expert advisor to the UK government's delegation to the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, UNCTRAL, and she represented the World Bank, Bank at the Commission in deliberations in the area of insolvency and cross-border insolvency. She was appointed senior counsel to the World Bank in 2013 and headed the bank's global initiative on insolvency and credit debt regimes. In that capacity, she advised governments of some 10 countries in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Caribbean on reforms of business and personal bankruptcy and creditor debtor systems. Her book, Insolvency Within Multinational Enterprise Groups, uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2009, has won the Edmund Coe Insul Europe Prize for Outstanding Legal Scholarship in 2010. Uh, Irit was elected to the International Insolvency Institute membership in 2012 and is currently the co-chair of the Triple Academic Wing. She has also been elected to the American College of Bankruptcy in 2019, and I can continue and go on and on, but I would like to say that we are very happy and honoured to have uh, Professor Maverick joining us today. A very warm welcome to you, Irit. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks very much, uh, Ilya, for this very uh, generous and uh, elaborated uh, introduction and for inviting me to this uh, conversation to the Insult Talks initiative, which I think is, is a very great one. So looking forward to, to this discussion and to your questions. Thank you, Irit. And of course, I haven't even finished reading all the accomplishments of yours, but I guess we'll touch upon some of them later on in the discussions. Well, first of all, uh, Irit, I would like to start by asking you a question about your professional career. And in particular, why have you decided to become an academic? Was it something that you have always planned, let's say, when you were a student uh, back in Israel? Maybe you can share your career path with us. So, no, the decision to become an academic uh, came quite late. I didn't really think about it at an early stage when I was a student or when I practiced law. So it was only later, and a few years into my lectureship in Nottingham, that I made that decision in so many words. Up till then, I considered my existence in the UK and in academia is, is quite temporary. Well, everything is temporary in life, isn't it? But, but you're asking about sort of the path, what made me become an academic, eventually a professor in the UK. So I started uh, my legal career after finishing the degree in law in Tel Aviv in the foreign office in Jerusalem because I was interested in law and international relationship, relations, so law and international law and international relations, and then did a training contract in a commercial law firm in Tel Aviv, where I, stay, I, I stayed and practiced law for several, several years, and in parallel also did the LLM in commercial law. 
And I really enjoyed the practice, practicing law. But over time, I realized that I particularly enjoyed digging deeply into complicated questions. And I was especially drawn to international aspects of the law. And so I felt that I wanted to find a way to broaden my international horizons and perspective before becoming a partner. And I think I also craved for some adventure at that stage, some uncertainty, and at the same time, some more control, to have some more control over my agenda, and for at least a few years, to have more space for creativity. And so I took a leave of absence from the law firm to pursue a PhD in London with with the late Ian Fletcher as a supervisor, so in international insolvency. And after the th- three years in London, in UCL, I took the position in Nottingham. And then after three years, so uh, during my first sabbatical in Nottingham, I spent most of that sabbatical trying to decide whether to stay in academia or to return to the law firm. And eventually, after lengthy deliberations, decided to become primarily, to, to stay as, as an academic, to become primarily an academic in the UK. So, so I guess I got addicted to that control and that having that space for exploring, for being creative, for, for writing. And also the education side sort of made sense to me, felt quite right and linked back to my, uh, my, the time that I served in the army in Israel before university, where I spent a couple of years in the school of officers and, and was in charge of education and leadership. So it wasn't in my mind from an early stage, but eventually it was quite a natural decision, so to speak. Yeah, I can relate to many things, what you mentioned, the academic freedom, the possibility to dive in and really have time to do this in-depth study of a certain area, which sometimes you don't have time when you are in practice. So completely understand and can relate uh, to that. What about insolvency law? So am I correct that when you went to the UK, the insolvency law was something that you specialized in from the very beginning? So when you started doing the PhD with Professor Fletcher, what impacted, let's say, this choice when you decided to write your PhD? Right. So, so why international insolvency? Well, I mentioned that at the beginning, I was primarily interested in, in law and international law, law and international relations, law and the, the effect of the law and cooperation between countries. And I think that was also because I, I lived in a country where cooperation with neighboring countries and generally couldn't be taken for granted. And I even considered a career in diplomacy, but eventually abandoned that idea and generally the idea of staying in government because I felt that a lot of the work in government was, was really influenced by, by the political environment. And, and also from the beginning, I also wanted, as part of my training, to work in a commercial law firm. And as I said, I worked for a few years, good few years, in a commercial law firm and maybe also influenced by growing up in a family that was quite business-orientated. Anyway, I ended up in, in a law firm that, among other things, was very famous for its insolvency practice. So over time, I specialized in insolvency and restructuring and, and did find it quite fascinating because, as I mentioned, it, 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 I liked dealing with complex legal issues. And, and usually in insolvency cases, that was the case. And also because we needed often to sort of run a business for a period of time and deal with difficult issues beyond the law. So even though it was quite hectic and, and sometimes exhausting and demanding, it was like the A&E or ER department in the law firm, I also found it a, not only interesting, but also quite a comfortable position to be at, to be the, 
the legal advisor of the of the insolvency practitioner or even the practitioner itself sometimes as I was the, the liquidator or the administrator and I liked how I had to sort of consider the interest of the stakeholders as a whole and sometimes sort of play the card that card of, of that position when I had to deal with counterparties so I would sympathize with their wishes and concerns and arguments but I I would say that I must consider the interest of the general body of creditors. So when I, when I decided to pursue a PhD in London, it made sense to me to do it in international insolvency, in cross-border insolvency, so to combine the two primary interests in international law and then also in insolvency. I guess you can say that it was also, to some extent, accidental because you ended up in this law firm, which specialized in this complex matter, so that affected your path and your, your interest as well. So that's, that's quite an interesting... Yes, yes, I think everything is an accident at the end of the day, right? It's all random, but it's, it's what attracts you to stay in a particular... To, to grab a particular opportunity and to continue with that rather than to change to another path. It made sense to me and I enjoyed it, yeah. It gives you a direction, but then, of course, you still have to keep the interest in what you do, right? And, and, then, and the complexities that, that you've mentioned are characteristic of, of cross-border insolvency cases. You're never disappointed, at least when it comes to complexity. Exactly. And different interests that are touched upon by insolvency cases. And maybe then we can link this to the next question, which is what are the purposes of insolvency law and whose interests should it serve? Who should we take into account when deciding on these complex insolvency cases? That's a really big question and perhaps the most important question, right, that we can ask ourselves regarding uh, insolvency and it's also where insolvency meets non-insolvency and non-law disciplines so philosophy social science right and I think well it's a difficult question but I think that the purposes of insolvency change right they change all the time they have changed and they must change as we change as a society as we develop as a society And we can see how in the past, right, many countries viewed bankrupts as criminals. They ended up in prison. Today we give debtors, uh, we strive to give debtors a fresh start, although there's still a lot of work to be done uh, in that regard. In the past, we focused more on liquidation. Now we focus more on rescue and on preventing insolvency, right? We talked about cross-border insolvency. There's a huge shift here in terms of our objectives, right? We, we tended to, be, or our approaches, we tend to be more territorialist in the past. We are now more internationalist, more universalist, as we call it. So I think the purpose has changed, but generally speaking, what we want to achieve is to have a regime which is fair and which serves us as, as a society and serves the, the main users, right, of the system. And the users, when we talk about insolvency law, the users are obviously primarily the businesses, the, the debtors, the individuals or businesses or institutions that collapse or that are in distress. And then the people affected by the business, the main stakeholders, creditors and other more indirect stakeholders, including the, the environment, the economy, the, the community. I think the sort of the objectives and the approaches and the tools that we use also change to some extent depending on the type of business or institution that we're dealing with that we aim to regulate, right? So if we think about banks, for example, we may 
be more concerned about the effect of their distress or collapse on financial stability, on protecting depositors. So we may even be willing to bail out certain institutions in some circumstances. But anyway, as I said, the purposes develop and the developments that I've mentioned, right, from prisons to fresh starts, from liquidation to rescues, from territorialism to universalism, these are good developments. But I think that our sort of our role or responsibility as academics is to always keep an open mind and a critical eye as to what is the answer to this question that you've just asked and to keep asking ourselves this question and to see whether the current objectives meet the current uh, challenges. And there are always new challenges to to respond to. I guess the the most recent one is indeed the COVID-19. And do you think that has impacted the way insolvency law is perceived or used? Should it be up to insolvency law to address this type of global event or is it for public law mostly? Definitely insolvency is a part of public law to some extent, or at least it interacts with it. It interacts with many areas of the law. So definitely insolvency has an important role to play in dealing with crisis, the health crisis, other crises, other crises as well. We had the the 2008 crisis, but but definitely this, this pandemic Affected, uh, affected businesses and individuals, and we had to respond to it domestically, regionally, internationally. I can sort of note that on the international level, for example, we started a project before the pandemic to deal with MSMEs, right, the micro and small and medium-sized entities, and how to deal with their insolvency. And that project sort of accelerated or became more important as the pandemic kicked in. And so we, we managed to recently finalize it. So that's one way of, of dealing with perhaps the most important impact on businesses, on the small businesses. 99% of the businesses are small businesses, and they were hugely affected by, by the crisis. And, and many found themselves in some level of, of distress during that time or will find themselves as, as the pandemic isn't over and, and, and also its, its consequences. Yeah, you're right. It's, it doesn't look like being over at the moment. Of course, we're all hopeful that very soon we'll be able to, to meet again in person and have conferences, for instance. So I'm really hopeful for the next Insul International and Insul Europe conferences to take place in a physical form. So the project you mentioned about the small and micro-medium-sized enterprise, I believe, is the project of Unicentral, right? I think you've also been involved in the project about the modular approach to MSME insolvency. So that was a, a different, a separate a stream, uh, I guess, addressing similar problems. That, so, uh, yes, I, I mean, the, the, the modular approach is an academic project, so primarily academic, involving a number of authors, academic and non-academics. And so we wrote that book on the modular approach for the MSMEs insolvencies. And that influence or impacted my own thinking, others thinking, and, and further developments also on the World Bank and ANSITRA level. So yes, this is an ANSITRA new, new part to the legislative guide. There are also new World Bank principles for, for micro and small entities. Maybe you can speak to this involvement, active involvement of yours in, in standard setting organizations such as the World Bank and UNCITRA. So where do you see them uh, what, what's the value of these organizations in the development of 
international but also domestic insolvency law? So I think these ins- the, these organizations. So you mentioned Ancitral, you mentioned the World Bank, I mentioned the FSB, but also Insul International, the AAA International Insolvency Institute organizations are critical in fostering compliance with international law and and sharing experiences and knowledge that can allow us to cooperate more in an effective way. It is difficult to sort of measure with great accuracy to what extent the standard, the standard that are developed by those organizations and the work of those organizations affect change domestically. So there is change, but to measure it is, is very difficult. So it is easier regionally, for example, in the EU, where there is what we call a level of pooled sovereignty. And so EU laws are directly applicable, right? Or, or otherwise are mandatory. It's not the case on the global versus local level, but the, the, the impact is, is significant also because the way we create international law in our field, right? Because the domestic policymakers and the domestic legislators are involved, participate in those discussions. For example, at Ancitral Working Group 5 that deals with insolvency law. So they influence those standards and at the same time, they are influenced by the standards and by the deliberations and by the discussions with all the other participants. So there is that influence. I can say from my own experience that as a world banker, when I worked in countries, I was influenced by the ancestral standards, by the World Bank principles, and so used them in assessing countries' circumstances and in my advice. And I can see also how steering committees and, and policymakers domestically were influenced by those standards. And I could see also in the actual reform that there are provisions that resemble uh, the, the standards that are set by international organizations. So we, kiss, we can see that interaction happening. And, and so development domestically, regionally, uh, internationally in our field. And of course, there are the cross-border insolvency model laws, primarily the 1997 one that was already adopted domestically by almost 50 countries. So here we see an actual change, right, that is driven from international organizations where countries' representatives participate, and then countries adopt those provisions, the model law, creating a framework for cross-border insolvency. And that, of course, facilitate cooperation, recognition, relief, not only within the almost 50 countries that adopted the model law, but also by users from other countries that did not adopt the model law, but they can invoke the provisions of the model laws that are adopted in those countries that enacted the model law in their legislation. I remember when the, you know, reading some of the papers that were written after the, the original model law was there, some people were very skeptical and, and sort of pessimistic about countries adopting the model law. And I'm now we have 50 countries that have adopted it or implemented at the national level and kind of trying to think of this new, two new model laws that we, we have now for the insolvency-related judgments and enterprise group insolvency. Can you give us uh, your views in terms of the future of these instruments and whether they would be as successful as the model law and cross-border insolvency? I can't, I can't predict the future. It's a good question. I can't predict the future. I can say that the reason why we have these new model laws is because the 1997 model law had some gaps in it, right? Still, 
it has some important gaps that we need to deal with. But two major gaps were the relief provision is quite vague, and so it wasn't clear whether we can enforce judgments based on the existing model, or at least different jurisdictions came up with different approaches in this respect. And perhaps most, more notably, there weren't explicit provisions for enterprise groups in the cross-border insolvency model, model law, the existing one. And so that's why we deliberated on, on those additional model laws, thinking that these gaps should be filled and will be useful for countries and therefore that they should adopt those model laws. It reminds me of our discussion, Ilya, when you visited Nottingham recently, and you mentioned to me that you said that I sort of underestimate the, the massive change that took place in generally in, in international, in, in, in insolvency around the world, but also in cross-border insolvency regarding enterprise groups, that in the beginning of the 2000s, we have almost nothing. And now we have this new model law, but also an, a chapter in the regulation and the new part already from 2010, I think, in the legislative guide on the treatment of enterprise groups. So a lot has been done regarding enterprise groups. And, and most recently, it's this new model on enterprise groups insolvency. Now, in terms of adopting it, well, this is a political question, but also a question of time. And we mentioned the pandemic. And so governments have been busy with dealing with this, with this fire, with this crisis. So more difficult to think about adoption of, of international model laws. But it is on, on countries' radar, to the best of my knowledge. And, and so I predict that it will take some time. It took, also, it took time also with the model on cross-border insolvency, as you mentioned. So it was adopted by the commission in 97. And then gradually, countries started adopting, adopting it. The, the United States only in 2005, the United Kingdom only in 2006, and so forth. So it can take time. Yeah, and, and getting back to this, you know, what do you think, having this view that so much has changed over the few decades, really looking at the historical time span, of course. It's very rapid development also, you know, when it comes to banking groups, for instance, and bank resolution within the EU. So we have the BRD that has some significant provisions dealing with group resolvability, group resolution plans and recovery plans. So it's also quite a significant development. And having this high-level view of these changes, what do you think was the driver? So why have we had so so much happening recently. So what has happened maybe in the economic, social life or political life that has driven this progress over the last couple of decades? The obvious driver was that the 2008 crisis, that crisis was the main sort of a driver for the additional developments in the area of banks and, and financial institutions. And you mentioned the BRD, the, the EU Directive, and, and also, importantly, the FSB Financial Stability Board came up with the key attributes on effective resolution uh, regimes. So we have an international standard now for financial institutions. So, so these developments were, were ma massive, as you, as you mentioned, and, and in particular driven from the crisis, which was mainly banking crisis, right? So that then affected the, the real economy as well. But still, Still, we are missing something there, right? So we, we, we still don't have some form of, of model law on financial institutions, resolution and insolvency that countries can 
implement more or less uniformly as, as we can do with the ancestral model on cross-border insolvency, right? And this is striking, isn't it striking that basically when we're dealing with global systemically important banks, if such a bank fails, that the consequences, of course, and the effects will be global. So doesn't it create the incentive or doesn't it make sense for the countries to adopt an international instrument that will allow countries give some predictability and certainty as to what will happen if such a global financial institution fails. So why don't we have some instrument that uh, can be adopted by countries? Excellent question. So I 100% agree with you that we need such an instrument and that we have that incentive because, as you said, usually the event, the, the collapse, the distress of a bank may result with some cross-border aspects, and we need to cooperate. We need that recognition, that assistance from other countries. And so there is a reason to want to have an instrument that can be implemented in a harmonized way. So to avoid litigation, to avoid spending time, wasting time when, when time is so critical. And so you're asking why didn't happen. So as we said, there are developments, and in particular, the, the key attributes are really important, but they are just high-level principles. We cannot just implement them as is to create, you know, in a uniform way, to create a, a framework like, like the, the one we have based on the model on cross-border insolvency. And I think that the, the reason is, or, or the delay in, in completing our so-called international financial infrastructure in terms of instruments or cross-border insolvency instrument or resolution instruments is because we see, we often see banks and financial institutions and their resolution is very complicated, very complex and, and very special. We see banks as very special. And so when we suggest or consider initiatives that will be more comprehensive, we then also tend to view them as too ambitious, too difficult, too ambitious. And the other reason is because banks and financial institutions tend to be regulated by different bodies in government and, and different international organizations sometimes or, or departments within international organizations than those dealing with general enterprise and individual insolvency. And so it is difficult to create those synergies and interactions and integration between bank resolution and insolvency. So I think these are the, the two key reasons why we still don't have an international instrument that countries can implement and, and to create that kind of framework that, that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Another way is just to see that, uh, you know, it's the national interest or the, the public interest that prevails. And of course, countries may not be willing to share with others and try to protect their local depositors. Of course, we've moved past that We've moved past that in the European Union, but you know, having the same level of trust, I guess, on the international level is, is really hard to achieve. So, yes, uh, it's I'm, always a chicken and, a, and, and an egg issue, right? And we are always concerned that countries will be too territorialist. It was also our concern with regard to the model or system that we have for enterprise cross-border insolvencies, because we worry about countries' inclination to protect their constituencies, their stakeholders, their assets, we worry about creating an international framework that will then uh, be rejected or not implemented. But 
our experience from the enterprise cross-border insolvency shows that it may take time, but gradually we, we do move from territorialism to what we call at least modified universalism. And do you consider it to be a glass half full or half empty, as you refer to your book? So, so I think it is half full and keeps filling in the sense, I think you referred to the cross-border insolvency book, where I, I do investigate or I try to explore the, the half glass empty in the sense that I wanted to understand why still countries or implementing, implementing institutions within countries, courts, do sometimes still act quite a, in, in quite a territorialist manner, even though cooperation is, is the rational way, generally speaking. And what I found from that exploration is that at least partially we can explain that tendency by looking at known a psychological cognitive biases that we have and that can influence decision-making also on the, on the group and on the corporate and on the international level. So biases such as the status quo and, and loss biases can make us act to some extent irrationally. And so to be too in, inclined to not cooperate. So I look at these, these problems and also solutions. But at the end of the day, I do think that the glass is filling and we are moving towards a type of universalism, we call it modified universalism, that fits our needs and, and the realities of business structures, institutions, structures. Still, it's not that we can just, uh, you know, say that everything is fine and we don't need to do anything because the glass will keep filling, you know, by itself. So we need to keep pushing towards more cooperation. And you asked about the role of the international organization. I mentioned also INSOL and, and AAA in this respect. And all these organizations play a great role in this respect to foster cooperation, learning from each other, sharing experiences and knowledge that helps with compliance with international instruments that reflect that level of universalism. I really hope that the, the Brexit has not taken anything from that glass and made it half empty again. Well, So that's a good point. So I don't think that that road that I just described or that glass that keeps filling, I don't think it's completely linear, right? And often we see two steps forward and one step backwards. This, I think, what we see if we look at the history with some perspective, that overall we are developing and moving in the right direction, but there are setbacks. Uh, at least it, 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 it raises many questions, practical like problems for, for lawyers, I guess. Well, Irit, I would like to move to more academic writing and maybe some advice for young scholars, because you have written a lot of papers, a lot of, uh, well, you've made a significant contribution to, to scholarly debates. So, and I would like to ask you, about your approach to academic writing. So is there a specific routine that you follow or sources of inspiration that you find in approaching academic writing? No, so I don't follow a specific routine. I'm not that consistent, but I can say that, well, 
when I have time, when I have some space, I will ask myself what interests me at this stage and whether what interests me is also, in my view, potentially important for the field and so can potentially influence policy. And often that interest is also sparked by reading something or it may follow meetings or discussions, conversations with with friends or colleagues. I I think, therefore, that the pandemic was particularly difficult for, for academics. I mean, on the one hand, we are quite independent and flexible and so could work in different kind of environments and situations. But at the same time, I think that those in- interactions with, with colleagues are really important for us. And so we, we have suffered and still suffering from, from the restrictions on travel and so forth. And how do you deal with them? So do you, do you go out, you know, have, have a walk outside? So is there anything that helps you kind of get out of this bubble and, and try to clear up your mind and find something to, to, be, to be busy with, except, you know, apart from staying at home all the time? Right. So no, I don't stay at home all the time. And that is generally the case also when there is no pandemic. So I like to work in different locations. I have my home office, but even at home, I have different options where to work. And I tend to go outside a lot and also work in other places and in the office in the university and, and generally not to sit for too long. It's not healthy. So, so yeah, I do different things and, and I do still travel. So even in the past few months, I did participate in in-person, in a few in-person conferences. And that was really fantastic and, and reminded me how important it is to actually meet people in, in person and not only on Zoom, on Teams. I mean, that's also a way of dealing with, you know, not just working with yourselves all the time. So we did lots of Teams and Zooms and, and WhatsApps. It, it's, it's not a full solution. So we do need to, to meet. We do need to um, find a way to actually do in-person meetings and conferences and so forth. Really important. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I think working from home and staying at home, there was some period where, at least in the Netherlands, you couldn't really go anywhere. So you, you, you couldn't travel to the university. So you just stay at home all the time and you know, stare at your screen. And that, that's not healthy and it's, that doesn't contribute to, in, to getting an inspiration. And then you do need to walk and, you know, go out at least, use the nature for for clearing yeah. your minds and, and not to sit all the time. Um, and when do you feel overwhelmed or unfocused uh, or have lost your focus temporarily? What do you usually do or if helpful, what questions do you ask yourself? I drink more coffee. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I would distinguish between being overwhelmed and being unfocused. So being overwhelmed is a problem. So I see it as a problem. So if I'm overwhelmed, I would try to ask myself why. And is it because I'm doing too much? Do I need to do a bit less? Do I need to, to take a break, maybe a short break, maybe a holiday if possible, or at least to rest? Or as you said, uh, change location, go, go and take a walk. So overwhelmed is an issue that I ask myself, why do I feel like that? And do I need to do something about it? And it's usually about, you know, taking some kind of break. Being unfocused, I'm less worried about. So I actually liked being unfocused, at least to some extent. And, and sometimes I also sort of actively make myself unfocused. So I think it's part of the creative, uh, creative process to be engaged in some unfocused thinking, at least to some extent, and, and can generate new ideas and, and new ways of thinking 
about uh, your your focus topic. And eventually you will come back to your focus topics, but uh, hopefully with new ideas. So I, I like to be unfocused to some extent and to read other things and to listen to music and to let my, my, my thoughts wander and not to be focused all the time. I think it's a very interesting way of looking at things because once you perceive being unfocused as something very negative, you it doesn't help you become focused and it doesn't help you in any... So you do need to try and make that distinction. Am I really overwhelmed because I'm doing too many things? That's an issue. Or am I just a bit unfocused, which is fine? And, and maybe just, you know, let yourself, let yourself uh, think of other things, do other things. It doesn't mean that it is a problem. It does. It applies to not just to academic writing, but I think more generally to, to what you do on a daily basis. And the next question relates to your collaboration with other scholars. Throughout your career, you have been actively writing and working with others. Many of these people have uh, come from different jurisdictions other than the UK. So what are the benefits or maybe also potential difficulties or problems with academic collaboration? It could be difficult at the beginning, right? When if, if you collaborate with people who you don't really know, and then you may end up finding yourself collaborating with someone who thinks so differently from you and um, your teamwork doesn't really work, that can happen. But it can take time until you sort of learn to what extent you like collaborating and with whom. In my case, I am really lucky that I managed to develop some deep friendships that also sort of in parallel or eventually evolved into creative relationships and collaborations. And, and so I certainly benefit from that professionally and mentally. It's not only about the outputs that we produce together, but also the fact that I have people who support me, who are great friends, people with whom I feel comfortable to share thoughts and who are not afraid to criticize me and to argue with me and vice versa. But you also mentioned the fact that collaborations are with people from different jurisdictions and sort of hinted that it could create difficulties. And, and that's true that potentially it can create barriers because people may be sort of more focused on their system and defensive of their way of, of doing things in their country. But again, and, and we all have that inclination, right? But again, over time, as we develop mutual respect and understanding and openness and we listen to each other, obviously we learn from, from that exchange. In particular, if it is international, if it is transnational, we can learn more about how things are done in other places and understand that there, is, there may be more than one way to do things. And eventually it can also allow us to develop you know, more cutting edge ideas, innovative solutions that can work in more than one country that potentially can work more, more universally. And do you think that this is something that young scholars should also get involved in? Let's say those who write their PhDs or you know, shortly after they've defended their PhDs. Is it something that you should try doing when you're a young aspiring student? Absolutely. I mean, I think that you should do both in a way. I mean, on the one hand, develop your own voice. So make sure you develop your own voice and that you can work individually on, on individual pieces. But at the same time, start sort of think of who you want to collaborate with and how 
and develop those relationships. That is, that will make your, your life, your work more fun. And so definitely I recommend doing that. So, so I would do both, right? So work individually, but also think of people you may want to collaborate with and initiate those uh, collaborations. So don't be shy and, 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 you know, approach people and, and try to, to, to think of ideas that may work and, and how you can complement each other. And, and that could be really beneficial. I really like this approach. I really like, as I know many, well, myself to some extent as well, like it, it, you really hesitate contacting people, especially those that you haven't met or, but you think, you know, would be nice to work. I've done, it wasn't easy. And it was Bob, you know, I approached Bob first because I wouldn't dare or, you know, I, I just wouldn't. Uh, maybe it's just me. So that's a way, but actually that's a clever way of doing this, right? So you, you, you knew Bob already and then through Bob, you contacted me. And so that is also fine. I mean, you can do it directly. You can do it through someone you know. That's, that was actually really clever. Also explaining your ideas really well. And then we, and even though it was during a pandemic, we managed to have several discussions on, on Teams or Zoom, I can't remember. Um, eventually even managed to meet in person. You know? It was great. It was great. It was, it paid off completely. And I, I, you know, one of the reasons why I've done it, because I was, as you said, sometimes you just need to, to get out of your own bubble and, and you know, it, it's, it's fun and it's really something different from just working by yourself all the time. Do you have any specific advice for an early academic, early career research, particular mistakes that they should avoid and opportunities that they should take if they want to have a successful career? Well, I think that you should, you know, as an academic, uh, generally, as an academic, not only young or, or early career academic, but mm -hmm. generally, uh, you should try and be as brave as you can and think of big ideas. But then make sure that the big idea doesn't overwhelm you. So it's back to not being overwhelmed. And so be brave to think of big ideas, but then break them into smaller steps and then think one step at a time so that you are not uh, too overwhelmed. And this is perhaps also a reply to your, or another response to your question regarding how to deal with the feeling of being overwhelmed, because we do want to think of big ideas. But then we, we need to actually execute those ideas and that can be difficult and that can be overwhelming. So break it down into smaller steps. That's perhaps one advice. Uh, and then also, um, again, it's linked to, to overwhelmness, but don't feel that you have to achieve everything at the same time. So don't be afraid to say no to things. You don't need to overcommit. You don't need to do everything. So you want to grab opportunities but not all of them at the same time. So pace yourself. That will be my advice as well. So don't feel that you need to do everything in a year. You know, I've been thinking for myself as well, you know, saying yes to everything can make you overwhelmed. But then at the same time, especially if you are at the beginning of your career, maybe saying yes more often. I mean, I mean Ilya, it's, it's, it's a problem for academics generally, early career, and then, and then it continues. Because there's so much that we can do, right? There's so much that we can do and we need to really prioritize and it's tough. It is really tough. So one of the main challenges that we need to deal with is what to say yes to, what to say no to and when. And this is my advice to, 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 to sort of think it's fine to say no. It's yeah. not the end of the world. It's fine. There will be more opportunities. 
Well, yeah, I think uh, I, we all can relate to that. So the last few, few questions that I would like to ask are not really related to, to academic work or to insolvency law, but are more, are more general. So the first one is the book or books that you have given most as a gift to others and why, or what are one or more books that have influenced your life? Not necessarily the legal books, but it could be any. I don't have specific books that I tend to give as gifts because I worry about, do I know what is the exact taste of the person I'm giving the gift to? So I do that only in rather rare circumstances when I know the person really well. In terms of my, the books that I liked, so again, my, my taste also changed during times and in different sort of periods of my life. But to think back, to think back of the formative teenage years, uh, I would mention a sort of significant books. I would mention The Catcher in the Rye and then The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera and then and then also Norwegian Wood by Murakami. Perhaps these are three significant books that I, I really enjoyed. More recently, more recently, I really enjoyed the books by uh, Sally Rooney. And, and I finished recently her third book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Uh, I really liked it. So I don't know if I'm influenced by books or that books have influenced me, but, but I definitely, I'm definitely and, and regularly inspired inspired by books. And, and another sort of weird genre that I really like is, is biographies, biographies and autobiographies, and especially within that. So I have a specific niche that I like, which is biographies of, of creative relationships between, uh, between people, so between interesting people. And the most recent one that I've read that was recommended to me by Don Bernstein in a relatively recent meeting, so just before the pandemic, so he recommended The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, and, and that's about the relationship between Kahneman and Tversky, so the, the decision-maker uh, scholars. Yeah, that, that must be fascinating to read about collaborations like that. Quite inspiring, yeah. Probably was uh, in the 90s when they started, I remember reading Thinking Fast and Slow, where I think at the beginning he describes his friendship and how this, the book came out, you know, out of all these conversations, well, informal walks, conversations, and sort of ping pong of ideas in between. And then how they did the writing together is also very interesting. So, yeah. yeah so it, it's quite a detailed account of, of the relationship and the creative relationship as well. Yeah, that, that I think will be uh, very interesting for our uh, audience to, to hear. The next question relates to a failure. So we all fail. There are many challenges in our lives. So how has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Do you have a favorite failure of yours? Well, I probably suppressed most of my failures, uh, but one that I cannot deny is the five times that I failed the UK driving license test. And that's after I've been driving for more than 10 years in Israel. So you know how they say that you should never give up. Yeah. But the lesson from this is that sometimes, for the safety of others, you should give up. Uh, still, I persist and I drive, but very little. And why is it so? Is it on, do you drive on the different side of the roads? No, and I, I, that's a good point. So it's because I've been driving first in Israel and then in the UK, which was challenging, then also in the US for a year and back to the UK. 
Uh, but it's also because of this unfocused thinking that we were talking about, because I tend to like to think and also to think in an unfocused way while I'm, while I'm on the road. I really like being on the road, but I like uh, to think while I'm doing that about other things. I don't focus on the road. And that's, yeah. that's dangerous. <laughs> that, that sounds, uh, yeah, maybe it's good. To, at some point you should say, well, maybe it's not for me. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, the next question relates to, is there a, something that comes to your mind when you think about the, the most worthwhile investment that you've made recently? For instance, that could be investment of money, time or energy. So, you know, some people think about language courses, others think about, I don't know, cooking classes, or is there anything that you feel that you have invested in? No cooking, no cooking. I mean, I would say that, I would say that talking and listening and learning from my kids, and especially recently as they, as they have become sort of wise teenagers slash young adults, has been the most beneficial investment from my perspective. I mean, my enjoyment and, and my learning curve in that context is, is the steepest. Wow. And they are really critical as well. So, How old are they? Uh, 16 and 20. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and my last question relates to, is there a new belief, behavior or habit that has improved your life, let's say, uh, over the last five years? Well. I told you that um, in December, so late November in December and, and early December, I had COVID mm-hmm. and I had to uh, self-isolate. And for 10 days, I had to self-isolate and I felt that it helped me develop my sense of humor uh, because I had to entertain myself. And I thought that I was quite hilarious. Uh, and, and then my daughter later confirmed that my, my sense of humor has improved slightly. Yeah. That's very unexpected. <laughs> Usually people get depressed, you know, and from staying at home for 10 days. I surprised myself. I was laughing quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I think it's a very optimistic and positive thing to end our conversation with. So, Irit, thank you so much for being with us today. I think it was great to learn from you and our audience would definitely love everything you've said and all the books that you've mentioned and advice that you've provided. Thank you very, very much, Ilya and, and Insol for inviting me to the, to the Insol Talks. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Contact us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Insol International using the hashtag Insol Talks. The information provided is intended for a general audience and reflects the personal views of the participants. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Thank you for listening.